Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. I would like to welcome back our listeners to part two of a Grand Rounds presentation on December 12, 2018 at Rusk Rehabilitation Institute at NYU Langone Health, in which Dr. John Ross Rizzo continued his description of a pilot research project involving chronic stroke patients who were recruited from outpatient clinics. The investigation included eye tracking while simultaneously recording motion picture capture of patients' limbs. At the end of the presentation, members of the audience had a chance to interact with him and ask him questions, which he answered. Thank you very much. So what did we end up seeing? So as I told you before, interestingly, eye and hand physiology is coupled during visually guided action, right? And, and I told you there's this co-registration, and I showed you some really nice data from Helsin that I showed the acceleration profiles of the upper extremity with primary saccade completion. And there, were, there was direct overlap, right? I mean, I think we would all be convinced of that. So in controls, what did we actually see? Well, even though the time was a bit delayed in terms of the reaction time, which we won't get into, again, this was, the visually guided paradigms, this did have more of a cognitive flair to the actual task itself. The eye, which is visualized in this kind of deeper blue, uh, purple color, was tightly coupled to the actual reach. So onsets are, are circles and offsets are squares. The reach is kind of this yellow grayish color and the, the, the ocular motor is always this kind of a purplish blue color. So you can see in controls, we saw almost the exact same thing, tight coupling, okay? There was almost no difference in terms. There's always a co-registration between eye and hand. The eye did precede the hand, but they were tightly coupled and co-registered. In stroke, in both less and more affected, we saw this massive decoupling between the primary saccade and the reach. Massive. So you can see here, there's this big gap between the actual start of the saccade and the start of the reach. So this is when they would first look to the target and then when they actually initiated the reach. What we would call a decoupling interval, which we've tried to create a, we, we, we've tried to create a new metric around. And so you can actually see they start and stop the actual saccade and then they fire the actual reach hundreds of milliseconds later hundreds of milliseconds later, much, much, dis, you know, much different from the actual control physiology. And this is consistent between less affected and more affected, although there are some differences where the eye does start a little bit earlier and the actual reach, where the reach does start later. There are also some differences in terms of duration. So if you actually look at the, the, the difference between the, the... Yeah? Okay. Any questions on that? What surprises me, actually, is the control data. So this is saying people look and then reach sort of at the same time. Mm -hmm. where it would maybe it's a relic of the study, but it might seem like I look at the thing for a while and then I reach at it. So it sort of surprises me that everybody doesn't do the stroke thing. Does that make sense? Like why do you quick look and reach at all at once instead of fixing on the target and then reaching? So if you looked at the data that I showed you before, in most cases they do the coupling. They don't do what you're actually saying unless there's some type of kind of different sequencing to the actual behavior itself. Right. So, so I guess my question is why do normal people couple them instead of look for a while, figure out where the target is, and then reach. 
Well, it's a good question. I mean, I think there's there, there's a lot of different theories in terms of why they do that, but I think there's there's probably some rationale in terms of how it actually works. So the the short answer is no one's really 100% sure. It probably has to do with, you know, the, the kind of some of the working ideas that you probably start to initially plan a movement using peripheral vision. And then what actually happens is you land on target and you may refine the actual reach as you're kind of completing the reach in an ongoing fashion. But each task is kind of has, you know, different needs and they're kind of different kind of computational loads as you need to complete them or they're, you know, kind of different facets to that actual task at hand. In certain cases, there are, there, there, you know, each can be broken down into segments and you should really think about what are the ocular motor demands, whether or not, you know, that could be broken down into several eye movements or several different discrete reaches. And they're actually, even within that, you can kind of break down a reach into several different phases and then we can kind of, you know, look at different nuances within that. So it's somewhat complicated, but the actual prior data, as I showed you from the Helsing group, et cetera, does show that coupling seems to be the characteristic for neurotypical or normative controls. So it is not standard for that you to have this kind of decoupling, despite, I guess, your intuition. Any other questions? Okay. So what, what's interesting about it is we then said, well, if you have this massive decoupling interval, what's actually happening, right? So if you have this, these hundreds of milliseconds in between a primary saccade and a reach, and normally you don't have this gap, what is actually occurring? So we actually looked at that gap, and it turns out that whereas controls typically make one saccade and then actually reach, although in a couple cases they may make a, another saccade, and that's pretty classic because saccades are really fast, they're quasi-ballistic, and oftentimes you have to make a secondary and corrective saccade. Strokes were making two, three, four, or five, six saccades in that gap. So they're making one saccade, then they're making a second, third, fourth, fifth saccade in that interval before they actually make the reach. So what the heck is going on? What are the actual movement traces looking like? So here's some actually raw traces where you can look at the controls and the actual stroke and you can look at the eye movement physiology. This is coming right off the eye tracker and right off the motion capture system from the limb. So in gray, you actually see the limb and in black, you can actually see the, um, the eye control. And you see the, 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 the black feed is actually the, um, the samples literally coming in from the eye tracker. And you can see this really nice baseline, and all of a sudden, boom, you make an eye movement, and it's co-timed and co-registered with the limb movement. And it's really nice, tightly coupled. Whereas in the stroke, you see all this really interesting extra behavior. It's like they look halfway, and then they pause, and they fixate, and they, they make another eye move, and then they wait, and then they finally actually make the reach. It's really strange, very interesting behavior. So then we said, well, well let's look at the errors. So you know, you'd expect the reaching errors to be somewhat larger. Um, in the more affected on the limb side, but how does this actually relate? And is there actual any, because remember, they didn't have any visual dysfunction. What do the eye errors look like? Well, it turned out not only did we see more affected uh, limb reaching errors, we also saw less affected limb errors, which are in the gray. And we also saw um, big errors in the ocular motor system for the primary saccade. So that first saccade that was fired really quickly has a lot of spatial error built into it, so it's inaccurate. Um, and that is correlated with the actual reaching error for both the less affected and the more affected side, which you can actually see step up from less affected to more affected. And the correlation you can see visualized here as we go from controls to less affected to more affected. So this is very interesting. So the eye errors are correlated to the actual limb errors. Okay, so let's do a quick overview of the results and then um, I'm going to try and blast through some, uh, some rationale and a little bit of some, some prelim data for next steps. So in chronic hemispheric stroke, MCA distribution, we saw eye-hand latencies that were decoupled or desynchronized, okay? So that registration between eye and hand was destroyed. 
Um, the early eye latencies coincide with increased saccadic behavior pre-reach, so there are essentially more saccades or more eye movements. The saccades are less accurate spatially, and these errors correlated with larger spatial errors of the hand for both the less affected and the more affected side. And these findings are noted um, and probably, um, uh, you know, bilaterally um, have some type of cognitive implication. So what are those cognitive implications? Um, and, and, you know, how could this potentially work and, and why are we seeing some of these, uh, some of these issues? Well, if you think about someone sitting at a table and, and you know, maybe having some tea and, and writing something on a notepad, you know, as, as I actually end up looking on target or looking to that potential teacup before I, I reach out and grab for the handle, there could be an eye movement that could have some type of computational load, meaning w w what is the cerebral demand to actually complete that task? Or if I actually stay on task from an eye movement standpoint and I keep and I stay gaze locked on the actual notepad, but then I actually reach for it under peripheral vision, what's the cerebral demand for that? So I don't make the eye movement, but I only make the limb movement. Now, what if I actually compare the two where I actually make an eye movement and a co-registered hand movement for controls, and then I equate that to what actually could happen in an impaired brain? Maybe a brain that just had a stroke and one that has spasticity or hemiparesis or additional sensory impairments. What are the cerebral needs in order to co-register or attempt to co-register those two movements? And how do I respond after that injury? when I'm trying to perhaps maintain or preserve function. So these are kind of some of the, some of the questions that we're trying to answer. And a number of years ago, a group, Beckering et al., actually wanted to look at the dual task implications of aiming. And so the idea was, and this is in control, so this wasn't in stroke, they actually asked a similar question, but they were curious as to how visually guided action worked in kind of neurotypical healthy control. So they said, well, what are the differences between having something presented visually and then having a button press versus actually looking at something that could have more of a demand and that really could be considered a dual task? So this would be kind of showing you a spatial target and then having more of an aiming component. So kind of showing you a fixation point and then telling you kind of to reach with some type of like a, let's say an embedded vector that you'd have to kind of anticipate. And so they said, well, if I do the single task and I actually look at the reaction time of the eye and the hand, I can look at aiming responses versus button, versus button presses. So I think I can convince you all that there are probably different cerebral loads or different cerebral weights between looking at something visually and a button press versus actually looking at something visually and then having to have an aiming response where there's some type of visually guided action, right? And so what they actually looked at is they looked at the reaction time for both finger and eye in single and dual conditions for these button presses and these actual aiming responses. So you can see on the left-hand column, single task and dual task conditions, and as it relates to aiming responses, and in the right-hand column, button presses for single and dual task for finger and eye, all reaction time. Now what's really interesting is when you get into the dual task condition for the aiming response, look what happens to the eye. The reaction time shoots up. Now why is that? It's probably because the cerebral demand goes up. So this is where they were looking at the, the interaction effects between what happens with this dual task condition in the aiming response. Now this is decades old research. Now what's really interesting is how does this relate to acquired brain injury? Now you guys all have this finding. So if I ask you to do these aiming tasks in a control, your reaction time is probably going to change. So what's actually happening in stroke physiology? It's pretty intriguing, right? So these are some of the questions we're trying to ask. And to tease you a little bit more, this was graciously shared by Shinoda, who's 
basically a professor um, emeritus at uh, Tokyo uh, Medical and Dental. And we can owe most of our brainstem neuroanatomy to him. So he gave us a slide at the Gordon Research Conference about a year and a half ago. So amazingly, this is all recorded from an awake cat in all of these brain regions simultaneously during a visually guided saccade. So I'm going to walk you through all the, where all the electrodes are really quickly to show you the symphony of brain activity that's required just to make a single visually guided saccade. Okay? So he's got visual cortex, LIP, which is the equivalent of parietal cortex, cat. You have frontal eye field, two different areas. You have superior colliculus in two different areas. You have the excitatory burst neuron, so let's say that's brainstem. And then you have motor neurons a little bit lower, let's say more like pons area. And then you have the saccadic response. So all of that activity is happening just for a simple visually guided saccade. And then let's think I have to then add my reach on top of that, okay? Which is, this was the work I showed you previously from Helsin. So imagine adding the motor control aspects on top of that, and then the injury from the stroke. So we published a narrative review paper a couple years ago looking at the implications between motor control and the oculomotor control and, and the integration regions or the, the putative integration regions that some people have started to look at from some of these kind of functional MRI studies. And you can see those kind of visualized in purple. And a lot of it has to do with the parietal cortex around the intraparietal sulcus. So very, very interesting work. Okay. So enough about that. I want to show you some new data that just came out of a group in South Carolina, which is very interesting. Is there a question? Something as uh, cats, or a lot of cats, have an elongated phobia. Uh -huh. like the arms, the mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you think that affects it? How do I think that affects it? Well, I mean, I think that probably affects... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that probably affects them to an extent from an ocular motor standpoint, but, you know, we wouldn't be able to do this level of recording, so this is really just kind of do mapping and yeah. the electrophysiology that we would need. I mean, as you can see, each one of those layers had a needle, um, you know, embedded in the actual um, brain of the uh, the awake cat, which is uh, it's pretty astounding to consider um, the art of, um, of that uh, recording technique. But, um, uh, you know... Fair point, I mean, model systems and what model systems you leverage in order to kind of learn things about human neuroanatomy is, uh, is certainly a debate. Um, I think the cat is certainly analogous in many ways, but th there are certainly differences too. It's a fair point. Was there another question? Sorry. You have to shout out because I, I, I can't see with my, with my visual system. Just, just, just shout out after you guys. Yeah, just. That's a good question. So um, it really depends. I mean, blind is a complex subject. So when you say blind, I mean, blindness typically means, you know, when, when you typically say blind, usually people refer to legal blindness. Um, within the legal blindness spectrum, I mean, it, depending on the actual publication or the, uh, the lay periodical that you're reading, most people, 80 to 90% of them have some type of residual vision. There's also the ability to localize with 3D sound. So some people will actually attend to different things and can make eye movements into specific areas. Um, but then obviously it can be affected because they may not actually be able to leverage the, you know, the, the perception to kind of refine. Um, so thus the secondary or the corrective saccades that I was mentioning before. Um, so there can be certainly um, uh, oculomotor activity uh, without question, but um, it may be affected. Um, what's really interesting is if you actually look at between, and this is actually work now that Kevin Chan is doing here in ophthalmology. If you look at sensory substitution and how people can respond to different forms of technology, developmentally and how people kind of use metamodal plasticity is dependent upon when they actually um, were blinded. So if they were blinded later on in life versus people who are congenitally blind, 
the way they actually go through how they process information is actually opposite. Um, and he has some publications in that which are really intriguing. So I encourage you to look those up. Um, Kevin Chan, he's in our ophthalmology department. He's a physicist by training, but works under Joel Schumann. Good questions. Okay, so I want to tease you a little bit with some of this, some of these cool findings coming out of the South Carolina group. So can eye movements interfere with limb control and stroke? So this is some stuff that we're really interested in. And then a group by Herder et al. Uh, came out with a couple of publications all within the last 12 months that were a bit surprising to us. We were you know, excited to see other people kind of in a, in, in a similar space. And what they were basically doing is they were doing a trails making task in this kind of modified uh, robotic enhanced setup. So individuals are sitting in front of kind of a projected a monitor. There's a robotic manipulatum in front of them. What they're asked to do, and there's eye trackers in place, what they're asked to do essentially is to complete the trail making task A and B. So who's familiar with the trail making task? Just with a shout real quick. Yeah, no, maybe. Yeah, okay, so I feel like there was mostly yeses. So basically, they're completing trails A and B, and they're asked to go through the trails, obviously, so you need the eye movements with the actual robotic manipulatum. And so you can actually see individuals, as you can, um, in this kind of avatar view in, in, on the upper middle and in the right, as they're moving forward through the actual task, they're moving this kind of robotic arm and trying to complete the task. And as you can imagine, you're making eye movements, right? So what's really interesting is on the bottom, you can actually see, just I'm going to show you a couple of quick snapshots. They said, well, let's look at the eye movements during a, a reach and during a dwell. So that's actually looking at a number or actually during the reach. And you can actually see the blue is the saccades during a reach and the yellow is the saccades during a dwell. And you can actually see on the left, you can see controls and on the right, you can see stroke. Whoa, pretty big differences, right? Is that not like striking in terms of popping out of the screen? It's pretty astounding. So let me show you something else that's going to probably astound you even more. So they then started saying, well, if I move through interfering with limb control, let's look at the saccades per dwell and the saccades per reach. And just given the, the actual time, they said, let's look at the kind of ratios. And you can actually see the saccades per dwell are higher for stroke and the saccades per reach are higher for stroke, right? As you can see in these, um, in these plots on the left. But what's amazing is here is a standard, here's kind of one of what they call the typical stroke patient. Here's a reaching profile, so you can actually see reaching speed in centimeters per second, and in, that's in black. And in gray are the saccades that are happening during that reach. Look at what's happening to the reaching speed every time they make a saccade. Can you guys see what's happening? Someone tell me what's happening. What? They reach faster, but at a slight delay. No, 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 the opposite. Every time they're reaching, and then every time they make a saccade, what happens? I want to give you a hint. During the actual reach, every time they make a saccade, they tank their speed. And every their, their reaching smoothness is terrible. They have no reaching smoothness. Every time they make a saccade, they have all these decelerations. This is crazy. I mean, look at this. Look at this actual reach. Our reach should be smooth, right? I mean, look at this. It looks like a mountain range. Every time they make an eye movement in gray, they have these decelerations. So these saccades were predictive of all these smoothness irregularities, all this, these, these reaching control issues. It's crazy. Every time they tried to make a reach with this robot manipul uh, manipulatum and they made a saccade, they tanked the reaching control. I mean, this is, this is what they saw in almost all the stroke patients. It's pretty wild, right? This kind of looks like they are um, maintaining their speed when they saccade. Right? I mean, so it's like 
they start to reach at a certain speed and they're continuing to reach at that speed and then they survive and they reach faster. Is that what that is saying? So like I, I, I would argue that they're trying to pick up speed. They actually hit a saccade and they decelerate, right? Because they're trying to build speed and they hit a deceleration. So, I mean, we can get, get into specifics in the paper, but in, in, there are different ways to look at it, sem semantically speaking, in terms of what you're talking about, speed preservation. Regardless, this is highly atypical. So their their premise. So let me tell you, show you what their premise is. So so um, but before we get to all the ideas. So their idea here is that stroke patients make a large number of saccades during ongoing reaching movements, which slow down reaching speed and smoothness. And their working theory at the end of the paper is that visual search impairments in stroke cause decreases in reaching speed and, and smoothness. And that visual search impairments after stroke may interfere with motor control during visual motor tasks. Some pretty big, bold conclusions. So they did another study in partnership in parallel. So this one study was in JMP, one study was in NNR, neural rehab and neural repair. And they, they showed basically they had three different ideas. One was essentially kind of a planning problem, a working memory problem, or a peripheral vision problem issue essentially. And they, they built some computational models. These are people that kind of span computational neuroscience and psychology. And they believe based on the computational models, and some of this is kind of above, above me, we have to bring in some of our computational neuroscience horsepower here, but they really think that spatial planning and working memory are the problems. But the fundamental issue here in my mind is that these are somewhat complicated cognitive tasks. At a very basic level, there's eye-hand coordination here too. And I think we really need to ask the basic questions before we start asking some of the more advanced questions. But what's incredibly interesting to me is what's happening to reach control during these kind of co-registered um, oculomotor um, events. I mean, really, really striking. And they objectified that really nicely here. Uh, and this was a really nice paper. So, you know, I want to show you a couple things. And I'm really ha happy that kind of people were getting a little bit fired up about this. But I want to pause for a second and say, why do we actually have, you know, a, a phobia? Why, why are we a phobiate species? Why have saccades and why make all these saccades? Well, there's a, a great scientist named Eckstein who's, who's on the West Coast, but he recently published this paper. And what he did was he built this computational um, model that kind of fed into a computer vision system. And it performed very well, which is actually visualized here. But the idea was if we kind of break uh, a computationally less costly foveate system, the idea is essentially that you can achieve similar performance from an accuracy standpoint when finding an object in real scenes as a system with a homogeneous um, high spatial resolution. But the, the, the idea here is what are the actual, uh, what's the cost? And you know you have to think about that in terms of what are the actual demands computationally and perhaps metabolically for the brain in order to perform some of this, right? And so if I were to constantly process the entire scene everywhere versus actually using very selective kind of foveal-based vision and using saccades, what are the differences metabolically, computationally? I mean, I think these are really interesting questions because we think about it in terms of, let's say, an amputee who who's takes additional, you know, there's additional work that needs to be performed in order to complete a six-minute walk test, right, following the, the actual limb loss, even if I do um, outfit him with some type of power prosthesis. But what happens when I am trying to complete this physiology? 
and I do have kind of limited behavioral systems in place, let's say, to try and recover from an injury post-stroke? I mean, I think these are really interesting questions. Okay, so enough about this. I don't know if I'm going to have too much time, except to say that some of the work that we're doing now, which we're really excited about, is if, if it has to do with computation and kind of workload, and these, these stroke individuals are really suffering, and, you know, how can we actually remediate this? How could it, you know, relate to rehabilitation? What's the intersection between, uh, you know, kind of functional tasks? So we have a couple of working theories. Um, and the way these hypotheses work is that eye-hand coordination impairment can be mediated, is, which is really mediated by this temporal desynchrony uh, or this uh, decoupling, directly decreases the spatial accuracy of eye and hand. So you have these kind of decoupling events. Visual motor integration goes down. You compromise accuracy of the eye and of the hand. Then there's a secondary hypothesis, and that's that the impairment of eye-hand coordination with direct effects on eye movement accuracy and then also the hand movement has an indirect effect on hand movement as well because accurate eye movements are critical to hand movement performance. You need those spatial details to refine that hand movement, which goes back to that former question. So this adds to the hand error of the primary effect and further amplifies the reaching deficit. This may be why we're seeing plateaus and gains for some of these stroke patients. So our action plan is to really dissociate the requisite neural processing for the individual and joint elements of eye-hand control post-stroke. So the central idea here is that stroke interferes with cognitive resource sharing between eye and hand movements during eye-hand coordination. So what do we do? Well, if we have eye-hand tasks where there's co-registration between eye and hand, what if we intentionally do things where we, as the instructor or teacher or physiatrist, try to desynchronize the eye and hand? or we actually limit what happens in terms of the oculomotor events. So to start, we could actually do reaching with peripheral viewing, so no eye movements, as I showed you uh, to some extent earlier. Or I could actually sequence the events. You actually look and then reach, or there couldn't be some type of a very specific order to how we're going about serial processing. Or I could actually play with biofeedback and use all different types of kind of strategies, and they could be visual, to kind of game the system a little bit. All three of those strategies we're currently using, and to tease you a little bit, so this is a, even a simpler task where it's literally just kind of a look, and a, a look and a reach. You can still see, we still see the same coupling between eye and hand in controls and this massive decoupling in um, stroke for both less and more affected. If we actually start to look at 2D errors between kind of where you land relative to where the actual target is and your directional error, so kind of looking at kind of where are you in terms of trying to fine-tuning the angle of your approach? And we start to play with these things, like looking under peripheral viewing. After 25 reaches, if we actually look at your error, you improve your reaching performance by about 20% on the standard, on the standard task compared to a no-look condition, which means you don't actually look at the target, you reach using peripheral vision. And the same thing true in terms of you, you improve your angular approach as well. If we actually sequence the task, you improve by over 25% after 25 reaches. This is a half a dozen stroke patients, kind of similar to the demographics I showed you before. And the same thing improves, but even more so. It's more striking in terms of your angular approach as well. And if we play with some feedback strategies, which I can actually start to leverage giving you biofeedback, you also improve not only your, your temporal coordination. So um, the, in, in the less affected, you can actually see the eye and the hand getting closer to one another for both more affected, more prominently, also less affected. But the controls, which is refreshing, don't know what to do with the additional information, and they start to become uncoupled, which is interesting, because they don't need the extra help. And we see improvements in duration, 
and in spatial errors as well, the 2D spatial errors I showed you about. Uh, similar gains for that angular approach and directional errors. So uh, we think some of this could be uh, fostering activity between frontal parietal connections, but I think what I'm going to do is, we have about five minutes left, I'm going to just end with conclusions and take a few questions. So at a very basic level, visual perception is a byproduct of our ocular motor control system. Fixations are the result of our eye movements and help assemble the pieces for what is in the mind's eye. Perception and the underlying foundation of fixations and the interleaved ocular motor events are very often coupled to manual motor control during visually guided action. This necessary link between eye and hand appears to be dysfunctional following stroke and thus they are incoordinated or suffer from incoordination and perhaps a primary um, eye-hand coordination impairment. Future studies are needed to further characterize these effects during visually guided action in the setting of stroke and begin to explore potential mechanistic and therapeutic directives as I just delineated. So thank you so much for your time. Happy to take any questions. Yes, yes. It's a good point. Uh, you know, we need to do uh, larger studies and, and start to recruit, uh, you know, people who are left-handed as well. Yeah. And also, the large numbers of cards that occur, does that work against you in terms of retraining? So if you have to retrain somebody who's mm. doing 100,000 cards a day, does that mean you have to do even more repetition? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I, 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 I don't know the answer to that yet because I, I don't think it's been explored at all. I think some people have done things like visual training or vision rehabilitation within the neurooptometric world and in certain cases within the occupational therapy world, and people do see gains. You know, the, the largest study that people often cite is this kind of convergence insufficiency treatment trial that had very robust effects. So you can definitely see gains from kind of eye movement therapy. And it can be done kind of at, on a similar clinic, on a clinical trials level as you'd expect, done at a kind of a, a, a federal agency um, award type. Um, so if you were to apply. So I, I don't know if you really need to kind of up the ante given the amount of physiology that's currently happening. I really think you just need to shape the physiology a bit to make sure that it's towards the correct gains and, and it's towards the right type of behavior that you want to foster. The interesting thing is just how much physiology and how much power is just currently happening all the time. And I, I really think that we need to focus it because if we don't think about what type of spatial details are being uploaded at the same time as motor control, then I think we're doing ourselves a disservice a bit. And now I'm not saying that you know we, we've done anything wrong. What's really interesting right now is that we're at an intersection point in technology where eye trackers are being commoditized. And if we leverage them correctly, I think we can have a lot of gains. And I think we just need to position ourselves to leverage them correctly. Great question. So I think crowding really works into the need for actually foveating. So those spatial details that refine the hand movement, I think some of that is related to crowding. So a lot of that information is why do you actually need to look on target and why is that so important to coat time? I think the rationale here is that some of that information is so critically important and that refining is so important because, because crowding is kind of a big miss here. And I think if we, we can really understand some of those mysteries, we could do a lot of good for some of our patients because if we don't have the ability to perceive that and kind of understand some of those kind of nuanced differences, then you're not able to make some of those perceptual judgments and you're holding yourself back. So, you know, the classic example is like, you know, I'm, I'm going in the store and it's starting to rain out and I'm carrying heavy bags and I decide to take uh, paper versus plastic. And should I grab the, the, the paper bag that's a little bit wet underneath or should I grab the handle that looks moist because it's about to tear, right? So how do I make, how do I make those judgments using central vision to say that that handle, which is made out of paper, 
looks like it's really wet and moist and it's about to tear. So if I lift up that bag by the handle, all my groceries are going to spill versus I should actually lift the bag up underneath, right? So, you know, all of that is probably things that are done by central vision. Now, if I equate that to kind of the analogous situation of if I'm doing uh, tool, uh, I'm engaged in tool use and object manipulation and doing different things functionally, what are the implications between crowding and material categorization and how, how all of that is helping me kind of get back into the workplace sooner and faster? And if I'm a craftsman or a toolman, you know, what, what is my ultimate efficiency? Why am I getting frustrated? Why am I not seeing the gains that I would typically experience? Or, 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 or why am I having some of these bottlenecks in my recovery? I think they're all related. I don't think we've made the actual connections yet. But in my mind, I think we need central vision and some of that in terms of the visual motor integration aspect that co-timing is required in order to have that information uploaded correctly so we can refine some of that, some of the hand moving goals. Because some of that is all automatic. Like we don't necessarily need to process all this additional information. Like wet paper means I don't grab here, I grab here. I mean, some of these other things that we make procedurally and from a motor control standpoint, we automate and we kind of just go into these kind of routine behaviors. But if you take someone who have all these kind of additional injuries, that, you know, I think that becomes initially taxing and frustrating and they have, you know, bottlenecks and there are very specific issues where you know, they hit these plateaus. And at, at a higher level, I think a lot of this gets very complicated. We don't really understand how to move forward. So I think this is a potential new path forward. I'm not sure exactly how it relates, but I think there are potential connections. So I don't have a, a concrete answer for you, but I, I just think that the, um, that, that information is really important because otherwise for very simple tasks, we could just leverage peripheral vision because peripheral vision is pretty good. That's what the data shows. That's why I think it's really interesting to show some of this information. We could actually read with peripheral vision which is what, what's pretty amazing because that's what Rosenholtz at MIT has done some really neat papers showing that peripheral vision is pretty darn good. So then why do we need this and why are we co-timing all this stuff? Well, it probably has to do with kind of, you know, upping the ante and making the task more complex and how some of this factors into kind of higher level function or what we are doing, why they're having problems when they try and go back in the workplace because some of these other things are vexing. But just thoughts, I don't know. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.